This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we're at Mount Grace Priory on the trail of medieval monks who made medicine. You can imagine sleep deprivation, a lot of praying, and flavouring various beverages with uh, certain herbs. They uh, must have had a somewhat transcendental experience, we say. We hear how the Carthusian order here lived a very austere life. Their monks were solitary, so each monk had an individual cell, and that cell was where he lived for his natural life. And we discover how this North Yorkshire site is the best-preserved Carthusian priory in England. All of that in just a few moments with our English heritage gardening expert, Dr Michael Klemperer. But first, let's unearth what you can hear soon on future episodes of the English Heritage Podcast. Earl Ranulph, the sixth Earl of Chester, when he started building Beeston in 1225, he wanted it to be a massive fortress, visible for everyone to see. And originally, the walls were all painted white, so it really would have been a beacon. We can look through that gap we've just walked through where the sun would rise in midsummer and 180 degrees in the other direction. The sun at midwinter would set between the two tallest stones of this trilithon. The third half was originally envisaged as being a temporary structure. It was so popular that it was fairly swiftly decided to recreate it as a permanent structure and the cenotaph that we have today was dedicated on November the 11th, 1920. Make sure you subscribe to get the latest episodes every week. Now, today, we're at Mount Grace Priory House and Gardens in North Yorkshire. It's home to England's best-preserved Carthusian monastery. And it's also a home of horticulture, as we're about to discover. Hello, my name's Michael Klemperer. I'm the Senior Gardens Advisor for English Heritage for the North and Midlands, and this is Mount Grace Priory is one of my sites. It is a fantastic site. We are standing in a glorious location at the foot of the Cleveland Hills. The first thing, of course, that greets us is the sand-coloured manor house, which is perched on a slope very nicely and stands proudly to greet the visitors. And then before us, a bit of a lawn. Then as we cast our eyes further up, we've got a staircased area of shrubs and a sort of stepped garden. Is this all your handiwork? I'm afraid it's not all my handiwork. The house itself was modified by Salothian Bell at the turn of the 20th century and he created this kind of terraced garden and since then we've a team from English Heritage led by the uh, famous landscape designer Chris Beardshaw have actually worked on the landscaping and worked on the, the beautiful planting you see before you and we've worked on this for about the last year and it's just coming into its fruition so it's looking absolutely fabulous at the moment. Uh, lots of green obviously lots of different shades of green but we've got um, many other colors as well yeah we've got wonderful dark tones of the peonies which are just bursting from their kind of buds which are kind of a dark purple there's the dark purple of regersias there there's a beautiful kind of fluorescent orange of that wonderful um, azalea behind you like a crackle of a fire in a hearth beautiful yellows pinks of azaleas and as you go around there's a glorious acer which is a dark mauve colour and beneath it there's a beautiful cobalt blue of some mysotis, glorious sulphur yellow of those globe flowers there and a dark red of those rhododendrons and that's just for starters. 
Yeah, there's loads to look at. It's um, it's a real dream, um, I have to say. So you're a senior gardens advisor. I am. What is One your job? One of two. One of two. Okay. What does your job involve? My job is to look after our gardens. We have 14 gardens with garden staff, but a great many more without garden staff. And our job as curators is to look after those gardens in a style appropriate to the period according to the management plan. I know that sounds quite bureaucratic, if you like. But at English Heritage, we like to pride ourselves that we, we own some of the finest gardens in England, Brosworth Hall, Mount Grace. Osborne, Audley End, Rest Park, Eltham, and we've just recently done a garden at Stokesay, Whitley Court, Belsay. So we, we own some of the finest gardens in the country. They're like um, works of art, these gardens. They are often reconstructions or restorations of those gardens or rejuvenations of those gardens and our job is to make sure that they look a certain way they are within period but also we have the pleasure of helping on projects restore gardens as well. So. Well that brings me on to my next point uh, the gardens were renovated here in 2017 they were what was the main aim of that project for renovation then? It was to give an impression of the arts and crafts gardens that the bells would have had in the period that mirrors the arts and crafts style of the house because the bells obviously were leaders in the arts and crafts movement and the gardens and the colour palette and the plants reflect that style. And that's the Victorian period? One would describe the arts and crafts really um, as the Edwardian period. Could you tell me a bit more about this manor house as well, when it became part of the overall site? Well, the manor house was originally the guest house for the Carthusian Priory, which may seem a bit odd because the Carthusians were a slightly odd order and they didn't really like having guests. They were a silent order, they believed in silent contemplation and they didn't really believe in mixing very much with people. But with the suppression of the monasteries by King Henry VIII in 1539. It was sold in 1514. It was sold to Thomas Laskells, who was a local landowner, basically, and he created from the guest house this, in effect, a 17th century manor house. And that's what we're looking at today, because to the each end of the long manor house, there are old parts... There are. Some of it is, is ruined. Well, so obviously this manor house was added later on, I presume. It was, and obviously Solothian then bought it in a slightly ruinous state. Um, the Lascales family owned it for a, a number of hundred years, and they had a 17th century manor ha- house here. Possibly a 17th century water garden, because we have a moat and a potential banqueting house and various slightly strange features. But the bells took over the house, altered it, and expanded it, and made it into this arts and crafts house that we see today. It's really pretty. Shall we go up the steps, get towards the manor house, and sort of... Start going back in time towards the Priory? We'll do a trip back in time for our listeners. We gradually meander up between the shrubs and staircased flowerbeds and emerge on the path in front of the manor house, where to the right we meet a few more of Michael's workers. Hello. You've got lots of gardeners. That's four already, I've just counted. Ah, they're volunteers there. Oh, I see. They're kind enough to to volunteer us their time. very grateful we are too to make these gardens so beautiful. Yeah, so just coming through an archway and a gate there and this is where I guess we start going back in time. We do. We are now entering the Carthusian Priory. This is a really impressive postcard picture I have to say. To our left we have the ivy creeping up the 
manor house. Then we have the priory to the sort of diagonal left. A few trees with blossom to our immediate front. The Cleveland Hills right behind. And then obviously to the right, a few more ruined walls and uh, what looks like a ruined building in the corner. Yeah. This is an impressive entrance, isn't it, really? The whole site is, is large, impressive. As we walk round, there's a series of really interesting features within it. The Carthusians, their monks were solitary. So each monk had an individual cell, and that cell was where he lived for his natural life. Um, he had a very strict regime, and he came out to pray, he didn't talk, he just prayed and sung and then went back in. And he was, his needs were serviced by another group of monks, if you like, called lay brothers. They weren't officially monks. And their job was to look after their needs. The monk's job, and only job really, was to pray for the redemption of the souls of the rest of the population. Oh, so in a way they're taking on the responsibility of an entire nation. They are, yeah. It's a strange world we're walking into because it's not a world that people today would readily recognise. They wouldn't recognise a world where there are people praying for their salvation. It's a massive sight. If you look at the aerial view pictures, you could probably get about five manor houses within the actual priory perimeter. As we'll see in a minute, each of those monks had a cell. There were initially 15 cells, and later on that number raised to 23 through various means. But they're like little houses with a garden. One of them was restored by the Bell family, and we'll look at that in a minute. But if you can imagine a small country cottage with a cloister and a garden, so you've got a small housing estate of monks here, basically. And they're all around the perimeter? They're all around the perimeter, and in the centre there's the church, and then there's a cloister that they would have gone round. There's also a few other interesting features. There was a prison for naughty monks, and they weren't necessarily always monks from here. So the naughty monks from elsewhere in the Carthusian order were incarcerated here, so they saw the, the error of their ways, and then it reintroduced back into monkish society, so to speak, or any naughty monks here. And also the lay brothers had their own little cells, which surrounded the... Uh, church and the lay brothers went out and worked for the monks, provided their food, did all the cooking, cleaning and all that stuff. Michael takes me through the meadow-like area peppered with low-lying walls of former buildings and past the church tower, then up some wooden steps into what was the cloister, now a giant square of grass. As we move towards the perimeter of the priory we can really get a sense of how big it is inside how much land is behind us as we just head through the archway here and we could we talk about it in football pitch sizes couldn't we really it's i'm just thinking about that right now actually and thinking it's four football pitches four according football to my, pitches my, it's big and what's interesting is if we look round we see a number of doors and that's the cells for and the monks' houses. They are the cells. One of those cells has been rebuilt, and it was rebuilt by the Bells. As the well, family who lived here. So Lothian uh, rebuilt one of the cells, and English heritage in the 90s restored it to how it would have been. This is an accurate recreation of how one of those monks actually lived his life in a cell. We've talked about the holy part of it, 
and his job was to keep busy and to make a beautiful garden behind that reflected various aspects of his religion. And then, of course, you know, you get this massive vista as well of the woods and the Cleveland Hills uh, behind. You do, and one of the reasons this was sited on this site is because it's surrounded by springs and running water and it's siphoned down through the hills so that water is pure and clean it's also siphoned to all the monk cells as well so there's there's complex hydrology on this site as well well let's take a little walk towards the monk cell it's a bit of a long way it's a it's a fair distance and i think it's useful in in that time to reflect on the fact that they were getting up at five o'clock in the morning preparing for prayer praying going to the church praying singing going back by 8.30, having a bit of breakfast, doing their, their ablutions, then going out again to pray again. And this process continued throughout the night until about 3.30 when they went to bed and then got up again at 5.30. They it's had two hours sleep? Well, they, had, they slept in sections throughout the day. So they didn't have a lot of sleep. You can imagine sleep deprivation, a lot of praying, and as we're going to find out in a minute, flavouring various beverages with... Uh, certain herbs, they uh, must have had a somewhat transcendental experience, we say. OK, <laughs> I think I know what you're driving at, so it's not so much caffeine that they were uh, drinking. No, they weren't drinking, because remember, there was no tea or coffee, right. so uh, their palate was very different to ours today. OK, we're reaching the other ends now, but are all Carthusian monasteries this big? No, it's the largest in England. It's a large-scale monastery of this somewhat obscure order. So the name Carthusian comes from France, Chartres. Yeah. The monks are originally a French order, and they were brought in by Thomas of Holland, who's Earl of Kent. He sponsored them to build these monasteries. So how many monks were living here then originally? When it was dissolved, there were 16 monks, three novices... 16 lay brothers and one prior. And prior was the, obviously the guy in charge. And the monks' job was to pray. The novices were obviously following their example under the, the auspices of the prior. And the lay brothers, as we've discussed, did the work. They were the handymen, the gardeners, getting the food, dealing with the agricultural duties. Because there was a, a broader estate, so buying in food. The monks had lands as well. So there was agriculture uh, also going on. And the lay brothers dealt with all that. Having crossed to the opposite side of the now grassy cloister area, we enter the front door of the refurbished monk's cell. Okay, walking into the cell, and of course you can hear the wooden floor, which obviously is a reproduction. It is a reproduction. If you can imagine coming into a space like a modern living room, it's got a really nice panelled walls in oak. The floor is also in oak as are the stairs, which uh, are chunky, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't seem out of place in a rather bijou apartment nowadays. And in front of you, some oak furniture, some small windows, which, uh, remember, the windows are actually a later edition of the Arts and Crafts. And they look out onto the garden. And they look out in, onto the monk's individual garden and courtyard. He would have actually had shutters rather than the glass in the windows. And there is a fireplace here. And we have a, a wooden table here and a simple wooden chair. And then we have an area in here where for the monk's bedchamber. So we've got, on the left, we've got the bedchamber. Not a bad size, really. It's almost a bit like walking into quite a large city centre flat, I would say. Two bedrooms, a living area, and then you've got, what, a bit upstairs as well. So it's, a bit upstairs. I mean, you, you, it's like a duplex. 
Yeah, it is. And in this is a nice little wooden four-poster bed, single bed, obviously. A wooden box to keep clothing and raiments. And on the other side, you have an area. So almost like a study. It's a study. So what is the second bedroom is effectively a study. It's a study, and his, its purpose is to study the Bible. And there's a lectern there, sitting lectern, on a table yeah. with a little stool little behind. A wooden stool, yeah. And we've got the same sort of window formation and almost window seat. So yeah. he could sit with a manuscript that I suppose maybe he's copied. Yeah, and, and he's copying out manuscripts and he's, he's, he's reading the Bible, and he's, which is obviously in Latin. And yeah, there you have it. Well, it's not a bad place, I have to say. It's not a bad place. <laughs> but you're living on your own. and if You're you can... living on your own for the whole of your life in silence, except for three hours a week when you're allowed out to go gambling in the fields with your fellow monks where you're allowed to talk. So on Sundays, they're allowed out for three hours to have a quick gamble and talk about stuff. If it were me, after a few years, I would probably be suffering from all sorts of... Anxiety and... Anxiety. Depression, maybe. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Personally, I, I, I like a bit of human contact, but obviously these guys were, were special. They obviously had such deep faith that they were willing to take that promise to themselves, that they would live in silence absolutely now it's time to leave the monk's cell and finally enter the monk's garden you can hear the gravel crunching underfoot the monk had a, a private cloister and he used the cloister as an area of contemplation as he prayed he walked or as he read his text he walked and that's part of the process of his prayer ritual if we walk further along apart from the low timbers that uh, are above our heads which say mind your head on top there is a little what looks like a cubby hole towards the corner here now what's this well the cubby hole towards the corner is the monk's toilet oh yes it has almost like an outside toilet and what's interesting here as well is that you've actually got a door for it and a lock and this monk is living on his own so he's got privacy within privacy and still not talking to anyone yeah i, I think the door may be a, a later addition by the bell family who may have used this as a composting toilet and used the the, the little summer house as it became as a, an affectation to a, a slightly less monastic lifestyle shall we say well let's go back round the uh, cloister as it were and have a look at the garden itself oh wow and there's a bird that's just flown over my head. It seems like you've got some nests along here, at least, yeah. or at least one. Well, this quiet, contemplative space is also a haven for nature as well. We have swallows, swifts, in that case a female blackbird who's nested in the eaves of the cloister. Right by my head. Yeah, well, it's a, quite a low cloister. You're quite a tall gentleman. So we walk out along the path into the garden. We've got... Um, a bed to our right, which is adjacent to the cloister area. That's a long bed. And then to our left, we have probably twice the size and twice the width of the bed behind us. Yeah, it's quite a large bed and it's divided into eight compartments. Each compartment represents a, a different thing. So there's a part for medicinal herbs, vegetables, things that were added to his palate. And there's another part for useful things. We know this particular bed had eight compartments because we did an archaeological excavation on it in the 90s and we found 
the traces of the trenches for the low hedges. So we knew, we know it was divided into and what's in the compartments is a representation of the planting from, say, the 1340s to about uh, 1500 when the monks were living on the site. These compartments represent exactly the ground plan, but we don't really know what the monks at this particular site planted in there because there's no records from this particular site. What we do know is what monks in other sites and contemporary herbals suggested should be planted. Michael then talks me through a selection of what's growing in the monk's garden. There's bed straw there which was used as a sweet herb in the bedchamber because it gave out a good odour and it was also used in the church as well, uh, laying, laying on the ground like, if, if you can imagine, rushes as a, as, a, as a covering. There's wormwood here as well, which is Artemisia, absinthium, and there's a clue in that title. So the absinthium gives a clue to what it's currently used for, which is in absinthe. In absinthe the alcohol. In, in alcohol, yeah. And it's also used in green chartreuse. Now, green chartreuse is a secret spirit created by the Carthusian monks. And it's from Chartreuse Abbey, which is a, the main Carthusian monastery still surviving, the great progenitor of Carthusian monasteries. And it's a very strong alcoholic beverage. And it, it's got a kind of, kind of herbal flavour. It's almost like a herbal tonic. And the monks, you know, created these beverages t- to drink. I mean, Artemisia has another property in as much that it keeps away unwanted insects, i.e. mosquitoes, to certainly send human fleas as well, because, you know, humans in, in the medieval era did have fleas and lice, and they also had worms as well. And uh, Artemisia is uh, wormwood, you know, the clues in the title. It gets rid of worms. It gets rid of worms. It's, an ant- it's what is known as an antalmintic. So when you ingest it, it's very bitter as well. It's known in the Bible as the bitterest herb. So what other things would they have had here which had a sort of slightly medicinal or slightly helps you get closer to God type uh, effect? If you you look in front of you, there's this plant here with these kind of splodgy leaves. They're green and splodgy and slightly kind of soft and leathery. This plant is pulmonaria. As we know, for the pulmonary systems, the lungs, and pulmonaria officinalis is known as lungwort. And in the medieval era people believed in something called the doctrine of signatures. Now, they believed that the plant was created in a certain way by God, of course, to look like a part of the body, in this case the lungs, and because it looked like a part of the body, that was God giving you a clue to which part of the body it would be useful for. And as we can see from the leaves, it's a bit bit squidgy, as you say, and it's got almost little... Uh, dots which make it look like what would be the alveoli in the lungs. Yeah, indeed, yeah. And this particular part, if we're lucky enough to find, has some grinded into a poultice or a paste and you, you ingest it. It's actually quite good for that. You know, it has some, some qualities that are quite good for that. Other plants which they used were actually quite poisonous. The monks weren't herbalists themselves, but they read herbals to herbalists, or almost like the medical experimenters of the period, and they tried out these plants, and sometimes they worked very well, sometimes they worked a lot less well. 
So there's plenty here to, to use in their daily lives. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you see a beautiful peony just coming out there. Then there's fennel here. There's thyme growing here. Old variety lettuces, broad beans. On it goes. There's radishes there that the slugs are helping themselves to. And there's mint as well. So, yeah, a huge variety of plants for a variety of purposes, both beauty and utility, thoroughly in line, actually, with what William Morris was talking about and the arts and crafts people and that's possibly why Bell was so interested in recreating this monk's cell because there was a great deal of interest in in the arts and crafts period in that Edwardian period in those, in that kind of beauty utility simplicity of life. Having gone all the way round the garden now round the bed we can see that it's a very austere exterior we've got tall walls we've got the ground floor and first floor of the cell itself which is really like a small cottage really but again, inside the centre, you have this sort of mini paradise, this Garden of Eden, this, this place of calm and colour. I suppose, in some ways, the monk did have his cell in his solitary life and he was cut away from community, but in a sense, the garden is his cellmate. It is, yeah. And I think many people today get a great deal of solace out of gardening. And I think monks would probably be the same. It gets one in touch with nature. People are calmed by horticulture. And there's a certain process in gardening. I get into grips with the season, the change in time. Things grow at a certain speed and a pace. You have to do certain jobs at certain times of the year. And that fits in very nicely with that ethos that the monk has of an ordered, timed lifestyle. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Mount Grace Priory House and Gardens, there's more information on the English Heritage website. We're back next week with another chapter of History for Your Headphones. Thanks for listening. See you next time.